Good evening. It's great to see you all here. I'm going to give uh, David Snoke a little introduction. David ha received his undergraduate degree from Cornell University and his master's and PhD in physics from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, he has worked as a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute for Solid State Physics in Stuttgart, Germany, first as an Alexander von Humboldt Fellow and then as a staff scientist. He became an assistant professor in 1994 in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Pittsburgh, where he has been ever since and has been promoted to full professor. In 2007, he received both the Career Award of the U.S. National Science Foundation and the Cottrell Scholar Award of the Research Corporation. He was elected a Fellow of the American Physical Society for his, in 2006 for his pioneering work on the experimental and theoretical understanding of dynamical optical processes and semiconductor systems. Um, his work has been published in Science Magazine. Over the years, Snoke has started two new conference series, has published three scientific books, including a textbook in solid-state physics, has numerous review articles for Nature, Science, Physics Today, and other journals, and has given over 80 invited talks and colloquia at international conferences and universities in over 20 countries. Specifically related to faith and science interactions, he has published articles in the Journal of the American Science Affiliation and a book, scientific affiliation, and a book on science and faith. Snow currently serves as the elder of the City Reformed Church in Pittsburgh and is the president of the Christian Scientific Society, which I think he'll mention tonight, which seeks to bring together Christians with scientific training and a high view of the inspiration of scripture. His title is on the screen, Why Did Science Arise in the Christian World? Um, but I also wanted to remind you that tomorrow he is also giving a talk at 1010 and the title of that talk is Being a Christian in Science. So would you join me in welcoming David Snow? So it's uh, really great to be here. And I've been here uh, many times before, had a son who went here, and I uh, know several people uh, from our area who've come here to school. So uh, it's really great to be here. And uh, thanks for the invitation. So all those things that she talked about on science and semiconductors and quantum mechanics and so on, I'm not going to talk at all about those. So um, I'm going to talk about something completely different. So I sort of wear two hats. Uh, I do a lot of straightforward physics. We have an experimental lab in Pittsburgh. Uh, but I also do a lot with science and faith issues. I've written some articles on that, as she mentioned. And so everything I'm going to talk about tonight is really just on this intersection of science and faith and really um, addressing some of the ways that people think about that in the big picture. And then tomorrow I'll continue on with some of that. Um, so my title, as she said, is uh, Why Did Science Arise in the Christian World? And uh, in some sense, that's already a loaded title or a loaded question. Some people would say, well, did science just arise uh, in the Christian world? And by and large, it's agreed upon that it did. Uh, and um, you can talk about there were other societies where there was advanced mathematics, uh, like the Aztecs, uh, the Babylonians, uh, and um, Muslim Empire for a while. The Chinese had some fairly advanced mathematics for their times. Uh, but it's uh, pretty much uh, noticed by a lot of historians that that those, those uh, uh, efforts really did not lead to any kind of technological uh, grand progress in those cultures. It was kind of sterile. Uh, and I'm going to be talking about why that was. And so 
what we have is sort of as a fact is that the, uh, the scientific revolution, which leads to the industrial revolution, is uh, coming at the same time as you have the Reformation going on in Europe and in general a revival of Christianity going on in Europe. Uh, and so the question is, are those, is that an accident uh, or is there really some connection between the two? And certainly you can talk about some things that would be just concrete physical things that would affect uh, that coming about. So people in Europe had boats uh, and you know, being able to travel by boat, you had good communication and so on. If you were a culture in the middle of a jungle, it'd be harder to communicate. And so certainly a lot of those other elements would come into play. But I'm going to argue, actually, that um, Christianity did play a very significant role in the development of the, uh, of the scientific revolution. Um, so here's my questions. Was Christianity essential, tangential, or even detrimental to the rise of science? If you talk to a lot of people, and I have to say, you know, the world we're all familiar with now, uh, you go on the internet and you go on any blog and you say anything about Christianity and there will be people who live in their pajamas who live to swoop in and attack you as soon as you say something on one of these blogs, right? Uh, and so you will have very uh, commonly the, the uh, experience that if you say something about Christianity and science, you will have people who swoop in on the internet to say Christianity has been at war with science, Christianity is anti-science, and so on. And yet the fact is, as we said, that historically science comes out of Christianity. It comes out of a Christian culture. Uh, and so did it do that despite Christianity, or did it do it actually coming from some Christian influences? Uh, and if it did, if it really was essential, which I'm going to argue, then what were the essential, how did science, how did Christianity actually influence the development of science? Uh, and lastly, uh, if uh, it is true what I'm saying, that Christianity was essential, why do we have this very common storyline then that Christianity was opposed to science? Where did that come from? So just to give you some references here, I'm not a historian. I'm basing this on a lot of reading. Uh, and um, here are some authors that I really recommend to you. Uh, one of them is uh, Stanley Yaqui. He's a French Catholic, uh, has written a whole bunch of books, and most of them are very good uh, on exactly this question of why did science arise uh, in Christian Europe. Uh, this next author, uh, Peter Harrison, let me see, I'm going to get out my laser pointer here and um, start to use that. All right, so the next author, you probably can't make out his, his name there, but that's Peter Harrison. He's a more recent author. Uh, he's at uh, Oxford, I believe, and uh, he has been writing a lot of things about how biblical interpretation actually directly affected science. Um, then I'll, I recommend also... Um, this book by Nancy Piercy, she's written quite a few books as well on science and faith and uh, actually has a lot of interesting things to say just about math, pure math, which I don't, uh, I'm not planning on talking a lot about. Uh, and then Owen Gingrich has this book specifically about the trial of Galileo and uh, the myths that come out of that. So let me start with a tour of very important scientists. And maybe this is familiar to you, maybe it's not. Uh, it's actually, again, non-controversial. Uh, it's just a historical fact, but a lot of people aren't aware of this. So let me, let's take a little time and look at particular scientists. Now, you could say at one level, you know, being in Europe, which was nominally Christian, if science is going to rise there, then most of the scientists are probably going to be Christian. Uh, but you could still ask the question, was that Christianity something that they saw as essential? Uh, was it really a living faith, or was it something that they just gave a nod to while they did their science? Uh, so let's just look at a few examples here. And um, 
I can't, I'm not going to read all these quotes uh, at great length, but Isaac Newton, uh, obviously a hero to me as a physicist, uh, he wrote, um, I think, two books on physics and four books on theology. Uh, now, it turns out his books on theology were not very good, and I don't recommend them, uh, but the fact that he thought it was, uh, he basically devoted twice as much thought time to theology as he did to physics. Uh, and um, actually, I think in his theology, he kind of thought, well, since I'm so smart, this is a temptation for all physicists, right? So since I'm so smart about this, I must be able to solve the book of Revelation. And uh, so he had a whole book just on commenting on Revelation, and it's viewed really as not very good at all. Um, <laughs> but um, he had a lot to say. Uh, really, he was a, a living uh, believer he it wasn't just uh, giving a nod to it. Uh, he was uh, had some weird heretical points that he believed in, but uh, largely pretty much a, a Christian. Um, and he has, says things like, atheism is so senseless and odious to mankind it never had many professors. That's still true even today. The number of people actually claiming to be atheists is very few, just a few percent. Many more people, the, the default for humanity is actually to believe in some kind of pagan god. Uh, that is what most of history through most of time uh, have believed in. Uh, so atheism itself, uh, he says, uh, is, seems senseless. And he points in particular to this area of optics and talking about the eye. Uh, where is it that these eyes of all these creatures that get very transparent uh, and work basically for vision, uh, where did that come from? Did blind chance know that there was light and what was refraction and fit the eyes of the creatures after the most curious manner to make use of it. Remember, this is several hundred years before Darwin and so on, but the evolution of the eye has been a point of debate, particularly ever since Newton, uh, that people have tried to argue, well, how do we get such beautiful things as eyes? And I can tell you as an optics person, it's really quite marvelous. Uh, and just think for a second, um, the smoothness of the eye is crucial. The, for the eye to work, it has to be smooth at the wavelength of light. It has to be a fraction of the wavelength of light uh, in smoothness. Right? Well, the wavelength of light is half a millionth of a meter. And so if you're going to be smoother than that, that says the roughness of your eye has to be about a tenth of a millionth of a meter. Uh, and if it's rougher than that, you'll just see uh, smoke. You'll just see fog. Uh, and where do we find that kind of smooth surface? Only in eyes. If you walk in the woods, you're not going to see smooth surfaces like that. And in fact, um, bright, brilliant, polished surfaces are so unusual that we uh, actually attribute lifelike behavior to them. If I see a jewel, I tend to think that must be living because I so associate smooth surfaces with eyes, uh, which only are found in living things. So the eye is a whole extra story uh, that, I, that Newton points to. But Newton uh, was a, a very much a believer, and he viewed it as part of his, uh, his integrated thinking. Uh, Blaise Pascal, uh, very uh, vivid believer, um, and uh, he was somebody who really uh, has a, a biography of a very passionate conversion, uh, a very great conversion story. Uh, and he says, uh, i just read this one quote, men despise religion, they hate it and fear it is true. To remedy this, we must, beginning, we must begin by showing that religion is not contrary to reason. And that actually gets into stuff I'll talk about tomorrow morning in terms of uh, integrating science and, uh, and faith. Uh, do we argue in terms of reason? Uh, Leibniz, some of you may be taking calculus courses and may not have warm feelings toward Leibniz, uh, the inventor of calculus. Uh, actually, Newton and Leibniz had a dispute over who invented it first. 
what you typically learn in a calculus class is more Leibniz's version than it is Newton's version. They actually both uh, were working at the same time on it. And Leibniz, again, wrote several books on theology. Uh, and actually, his theology is not bad. Uh, he, he's actually respected as a philosopher uh, and a theologian by many people. And um, again, he says, he integrates his science with his faith. He says, uh, let me see, where's my pen here? Uh, it is on reflecting the works of God that we are able to discover the one who wrought them. And so he's saying that actually by studying nature, which is what science is all about, we actually learn uh, about the creator. Uh, William Harvey, uh, maybe less familiar to you if you're in medicine. This is a, a fellow considered to be the father of modern medicine who was the first person to put two and two together about the circulation system, the fact that our blood vessels are carrying blood away from the heart and then the veins carry them back uh, to the heart again through the lungs. Um, and um, uh, he basically reasoned with a deliberately theological argumentation. He said, well, you know, he was doing uh, a dissection, and he sees all these valves in the veins. And he's saying, well, what good could those valves be for? And he reasons, well, they must be good for something, uh, because God doesn't create junk. He must have created them for some purpose. And so he starts to look for the purpose of them and realizes that they're for returning the blood back to the heart, that every time you bend a muscle, you push blood through these... Uh, valves and it shoots the blood back to the heart. Uh, and so that's a direct argument that he used on the basis of creation to lead his science. Uh, and really, medicine for the last hundred, several hundred years since Harvey has tended to operate on that same principle to say, if there is something in our bodies, it's probably useful for something. It's probably doing something uh, that has a purpose. And of course, uh, there were evolutionists who would give reasons for why they would think that would happen without a god. But basically, uh, biological science has largely followed Harvey in saying we don't expect a lot of junk. We expect to see uh, things that actually have purpose in the body. Uh, this fellow is one of my favorites. He's an experimentalist. Uh, he's the guy who's responsible for all of uh, the foundations of uh, electricity and magnetism. So all of our electric lights, cell phones, and things like that that use electromagnetic fields this is the first guy to really systematize the whole concept of the electromagnetic field. Uh, he was a, um, uh, a really uh, dynamic Christian. And uh, here I have some quotes just talking about his faith. I'll tell one story about this guy. Um, he was um, in a very strict Reformed church. Uh, and I don't, some of you may know something about that around here. Uh, and he was a Sabbatarian. And the queen... Uh, of England uh, was so impressed with his work, she invited him to come before her. And in England at that time, it was quite an honor to be called to have an audience with the queen. And uh, his, um, the problem was that she invited him to come on a Sunday morning. And so he wrestled with this and he decided, I'll go and see the queen uh, and skip church. And um, he did it. And then his, uh, his session of his church, for you Presbyterians, you know what a session is, uh, they called him up on church discipline for skipping church uh, and said, uh, you know, God is higher than the queen. And so after about two weeks, he said, you're right, I repent, I should have kept the Sabbath and I shouldn't have met the queen. So culturally very different from nowadays, right? Who would, he, who would even think to ask that question? Uh, but that's how serious he took his faith, that that was even an issue for him. Um, this guy, late 1800s now, uh, 
William Thompson, the father of thermodynamics. Some of you may be taking thermo and not particularly enjoying that, uh, but actually it's extremely important for all of engineering. Uh, William Thompson, again, a very, very dynamic Christian. Uh, and again, um, he makes an argument here that I think is uh, kind of interesting. Um, he says, you know, if a scientist uh, comes along and says there's nothing in the universe but dead matter, he himself is a contradiction to his own argument because his thought is itself not just dead matter. Uh, he is, in fact, thinking about these things, uh, and he's contradicting his whole presumption, which is that there's nothing here but dead matter. Uh, and so he argues that, that clearly what we see around us is not just a fortuitous concourse of atoms. Now, he's writing in the late 1800s when already now there was Darwinism in the world, and so he's, he's really write, you know, writing uh, in contrast to them and saying this is not a sensible argument. But this guy was uh, raised to being a lord because of being such a great scientist. And a lord in England was a, was a title for one of the nobles. Uh, another favorite of mine, because he was Presbyterian, um, James Clerk Maxwell. He was actually a Presbyterian elder, so I have to give him a, uh, a kudos here. Um, he had a, an interesting argument. He said that um, Christians whose minds are scientific are duty-bound to study science uh, so that they may glorify God. Um, a lot of people wrestle with, what should I stay in science or should I go into Christian ministry or something like that? Uh, Maxwell would have said, if you're good at science, you should stay in science. Now, I don't, you know, Maxwell is Maxwell's opinion, but um, he basically said there's so few people who are good at it that we need uh, Christians to stay into it and to study it to glorify God. Uh, 20th century now, Werner von Braun, uh, again, uh, strongly felt that God revealed himself through creation uh, and that science could point us toward God. Um, just a few, I'm going to accelerate here. More recent Nobel Prize winners, uh, Arthur Compton, uh, Charles Towns, uh, and Richard Smalley. These are all three Nobel Prize winners uh, in the last 50 years, uh, all of whom uh, had strong faith. So what's our, what's our conclusion uh, of this? And by the way, um, these uh, slides are posted on the web. I'll show you the website address at the end. Um, this is a copy of a talk I actually gave at MIT last spring. And so, you know, the two most important engineering schools in, in the world I need to give this talk to, right, uh, MIT and Geneva. Uh, so <laughs> if, you, uh, if you go onto our website, I'll show you and look for the MIT talk. It's basically very close to this one here. Um, so here's a summary of the historical facts. Most early scientists were Christians. Uh, some had not so strong Christian commitments, but many had extremely strong Christian commitments. Uh, many of them were actually ordained priests. If you go back before Newton, almost every scientist before Newton was an ordained priest uh, in the Catholic Church. Um, and one of my favorites is Roger Bacon. We'll come back to him. Uh, none of them saw their, uh, any kind of contradiction between their faith and their science. They saw them as compatible. Now, what happened later on in the 1700s, a movement arises called the Enlightenment. And uh, you guys probably have studied that. That's in one of your uh, core courses, I think. Uh, which is basically a retelling of history. And at that point, that movement of the Enlightenment starts to retell the story to talk about this idea of the warfare of science and Christianity. And we'll come back to that. In response to the Enlightenment, many Christians then react with this idea of simple faith or simple pietism. And so uh, there are many movements in Europe as well as in the United States that are an anti-education movement that say, if you go off to the university, you're going to be sucked in by these Enlightenment people, so we need to just have a simple faith uh, and not think very deeply. And so 
Uh, there is some validity to saying that Christianity has been anti-science in the last hundred years. Uh, it's a reaction against the Enlightenment. That was one of the reactions of some Christians uh, to say we'll just pull out of the intellectual world altogether. Uh, nevertheless, it's, it, there has been always uh, a continuous presence of Christians uh, with strong faith, as I just showed you, uh, always going up uh, all, uh, through the present day. So I'm going to give you now arguments why it was crucial, why Christianity actually played a role. And I'm here, again, drawing on a number of historians and a number of arguments that those historians have made. So uh, Stanley Jockey, um points to a very basic presupposition, which, uh, again, is so basic that you might not even have ever thought to question this, which is this idea that time runs forward and doesn't go in circles. Um, that's something that's sort of intrinsic to the biblical worldview, that, that we have a book that starts with in the beginning and it ends with an end. Uh, and it doesn't repeat. Uh, it's a straight line. Um, that is not a common assumption that people have made throughout history. A lot of cultures have had a cyclical view of history that everything repeats and no progress is ever made. Um, so if you have a view of cyclical history, what would be the point of trying to do technological progress? Right? I mean, everything that you do just gets undone, and there's really no point. Uh, and so a linear concept of time, you know, another way to put it is to say, well, um, if I change things, am I disrespecting my ancestors? Uh, that was a crucial question for a lot of people in a lot of cultures to say uh, change is maybe not good uh, because progress is an insult to my ancestors who did it a different way. Uh, so Christianity brings a linear t sense of time, and uh, Stanley Jaki, as I said, uh, talks about this in, at great length. Now, uh, Peter Harrison uh, makes an argument that um, there's another important movement that happens. And starting in the Middle Ages, uh, there was a, a, a re-emphasis on incarnational theology. Now, we, you know, the Bible talks about the incarnation, right? It talks about Christ taking on human flesh uh, and dying physically on the cross. But the church uh, in the Roman Empire was very influenced by Roman and Greek thinking. And so there was a sort of spiritual divide that happened where the uh, people in general in that culture would say, well, the spirit world is over here and the physical world is over here and they really don't have anything to do with each other. And Some of you, again, if you've taken your core courses, would associate that with Gnosticism, right? The idea that the spirit and the flesh have nothing to do with each other. Well, starting in uh, the Middle Ages, around as early as 1000 AD, there was a movement of getting back to incarnational theology. And you had theologians, uh, again, these are priests uh, in monasteries writing to each other, and we have some of their letters, are saying, well, you know, the fact that God took on human flesh means it can't be just dirty. You know, it must be worth studying. And uh, if Christ died in the flesh, you know, that says that he has honored it quite a bit. And so maybe it's worthwhile actually studying physical stuff. And that actually becomes a significant move for monks in monasteries to say, well, you know, uh, and there's one quote. Somebody's like, well, if God went to the trouble of making a flea, then it's worth studying a flea, uh, you know, and it's not, you know, something to be ignored. And it's funny because you sometimes hear that kind of thinking even today, as much as, uh, you know, I would agree there's a lot of government waste, uh, you sometimes will hear people point at scientific studies and say, this is a scientific study to study the uh, wings of a flea. What a stupid thing. Well, from an incarnational theology standpoint, say, well, if God made it, it's worth studying, right? Uh, and we need to maybe prioritize. But uh, in principle, all things that God made are worth studying. 
Um, and as I said, I especially like the monk Roger Bacon. Roger Bacon uh, is in the 1200s, very, very early, and yet he did a lot of experimental science. He's one of the first monks to say, let's not just theorize, let's not just write books, but let's actually get mucky and do stuff and see whether these herbs that witches are prescribing actually work. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, let's see if, uh, you know, this or that will actually work. He actually took gunpowder, which they had from China, and said, maybe this is good for doing something with instead of just making fun little colored fires. Uh, and so there's a lot of things that are attributed to Roger Bacon. He's a very fascinating figure, and I really encourage you to go uh, read about him if you have the time. Uh, another sort of base-level thing that may seem obvious to a lot of you uh, is that the Christian world had a high value on truth and honesty, especially among the monks who were doing a lot of study. Uh, and uh, Francis Bacon, who is no relation to Roger Bacon, Francis Bacon uh, lives around the time of Shakespeare. And some people think he wrote Shakespeare's plays. I don't agree with that. Um, but Francis Bacon was very influential in promoting this idea of the scientist, the person who is uh, really committed to truth wherever it leads uh, and is willing to take the time to study that. And I'll come back to this as well, but we're starting to see that break down in our society. We're starting to see a lot of falsification in science. We're starting to see pseudoscience uh, and, and um, scholasticism uh, maybe is not a word you're familiar with. I would call that publishing for the sake of publishing, articles that nobody wants to read uh, that just sort of comment on other articles that other people wrote. <clears throat> and that's rising as well in our day, uh, where the value is no longer now on truth, but just on getting published. Um, now, this is one that actually comes uh, right out of Roger Bacon. Roger Bacon uh, was a Franciscan monk. The Franciscans were not widely known for their uh, academic pursuits. Uh, that tended to be Jesuits and other types of monks. There wasn't any Jesuits in, uh, in, Francis Bacon, in Roger Bacon's day, but the Dominicans and other monks were the ones who tended to be uh, more known for scholarship. The Franciscans were known as the apostles of love, right? They were the ones who cared for the poor. And Roger Bacon says, you know what? Some of the science stuff might actually be useful for helping the poor. And he was extremely, if you read his writings, they're really quite amazing how far-sighted he was. He says, you know, if we had technology, you know, that let us harvest better uh, and use less stuff, we might actually be able to help the poor. And so um, that's what we would today call applied science. Uh, just keep in mind, in most cultures, including Europe at that time, there was no particular interest in saying, how can we make the lives of the poor better? Uh, how can we apply science? Most of the science that was being done uh, was being done by elite classes to cement their own power. And so, for instance, in Babylon, you had the, uh, or in the Aztecs, you had the priest class that knew a lot of the secrets, but the whole idea was to use them as magic to impress the masses so that you would know, be able to do something they couldn't do, and that cemented your power. Uh, you don't give away your secrets if you want to keep your own power. And so the Christian influence of saying, let's give it all away, let's tell everybody how to do this, was a, a very uh, different impulse from what you had in a lot of cultures, such as the Aztecs or the Babylonians, uh, where they, the priest class did everything they could to keep everybody else from knowing so it would look like magic when they did stuff. And that was an important thing that was going on. Um, now, a number of people have commented on this, uh, the expectation of rationality. 
If you think about it, if you're a polytheist and you believe in there's spirits all over the place and you go into the lab and you do an experiment, uh, what makes you confident that if you go in the next day it's going to come out the same way? Uh, maybe some demon is going to mess you up. And I mean, how many of us have said, you know, I did something one way and then the next day I tried to do it again and it didn't work? Must have been gremlins, right? Uh, it must have been something, you know, uh, something's opposed to me. And um, we talk about Murphy's Law, right, of things always coming out the wrong way, the way I don't want. Well, there was a theological movement, again, starting in the Middle Ages, of saying, well, if God is rational and orderly, he's not going to trick us. He's not going to change the rules from day to day. And so even though he might do miracles, he's not generally trying to mess with our minds and fake us out on the rules of, of, of nature. And that's, again, a very fundamental a principle. And here's another book that I recommend that addresses this uh, called The Privileged Planet uh, by uh, uh, Guillermo Gonzalez and Jay Richards. Um, this is a point that I was not aware of until just a couple of years ago, uh, reading this, again, fairly uh, new author, Peter Harrison. He actually makes an even further argument. He says that Protestant hermeneutics of the Bible uh, was an important uh, influence on the scientific revolution. And you say, what? <laughs> uh, it turns out it's a, it's a fairly good argument. If you think about the way people in general looked at the world in the Middle Ages, you have to sort of go back and sort of put yourself in their mindset. Uh, and it's also very common uh, in lots of cultures throughout the world, throughout history, is that in general, it's very tempting to see everything as being a secret message sent to me by some spirit or by God. Uh, and so people look for portents, right? They look for signs in the skies. And so a lot of science and a lot of reading of the Bible consists of something that actually people even do today, right? So there's two ways to read the Bible. There's more than two, but there's at least two, okay? One way would be to go and say, I'm going to open up the Bible, put my finger on a verse, and say, this is a message from God for me today, right? And I'm viewing it as a set of secret codes to send me messages. Uh, and that's the way a lot of people read the Bible. They read it in a sort of secret code way, that God has encoded secrets in there that are really messages to us that aren't the face value of things. The Protestant movement of hermeneutics was to say, let's look at the face value, that the meaning is in the primary meaning. It's in the, in the face of it. Uh, and it's not in some secret message that you have to decode in some kind of mystery way. Well, that mapped over to looking at the world the same way, to say, if I see uh, a pheasant, if I was in the Middle Ages, I might have said, ah, I see a pheasant. A pheasant stands for blessing. Uh, and, a, and a pheasant standing for blessing means that maybe God has got something prepared for me to do today. And so that might be the interaction I would have with seeing a pheasant if I was in the Middle Ages, right? Um, by the end of the Reformation, people say, there's a pheasant. Uh, God made that pheasant. Let me study the pheasant and see how it flies. Let me see how it works. Let me see. You see the difference? Uh, in the way people were reading the Bible was they were being trained to go away from saying, what's the secret message here, to saying, let me look at the big picture. Let me systematize. Let me see what it really means on the face of it. Uh, and they started to apply that same kind of thinking to Scripture. And so Harrison makes a, a pretty interesting argument. He says, in the year like 1500, a typical book on animals would say something like, the pheasant. The pheasant uh, is a winged creature that stands for this and that and the other thing. 
Uh, and so if you see a pheasant, this refers to a story or something like that. By the year 1600, people are saying, or just a little bit after that, the pheasant. The pheasant is bipedal, uh, has two feet, has two wings, uh, has two eyes. It's constructed in the following way. It has, it's a complete change of mentality in terms of even how to write books, uh, in terms of thinking about the thing rather than thinking about the secret message that I got from the thing. And that's a huge change that I think Peters Harrison has really done a, a great job of pointing out. Um, another one specifically related to the Reformation is the Reformation in general leads people to fear God, and it's not as though it was unique in this way, uh, but it really had an emphasis on this, to say that we should fear God rather than man. Uh, in, the, in, in general, scholasticism is a movement that crops up in, in all kinds of academic pursuits. And scholasticism is the endless quoting of authorities, right? So I write a paper in which I review all the previous papers written on the topic, and then those papers are reviewing the previous papers uh, before them, and we're all just in one big sort of morass of citing each other, right? Uh, and I see this in my own experience. You know, it's not just something that they did in the Middle Ages. Um, well, really, if you think about it, to do science where you're questioning paradigms, where you're questioning is that really true, um, can be a risky thing. Right? You could be questioning what authority has said. And so in the Middle Ages, authorities like um, uh, Aristotle, were highly venerated. And so to question Aristotle was to question really important authorities. And if you really viewed uh, all authority as something that uh, you know, was the highest there is, then you would say, well, I have to bow to that. But Christians started to say, well, God's word stands above the word of man, and the truth with a capital T stands above uh, what Aristotle says. And so if I actually go out and see that things don't work the way Aristotle says, then I can say Aristotle is wrong because people are fallible. Uh, and so uh, there is a new sense of questioning uh, some of the things that comes on in the Reformation. And again, that's not out of anti-Christian nature. That's rather saying God is the highest authority and men are fallible. Um, here's another one, and I think this is my, my last on these arguments, the sort of unique attributes of Christianity. And I sort of mentioned this as well. The monastic communities, as much as maybe monastic communities have a bad reputation in our day, uh, we tend to think of them, we have the stereotype of them as being isolated and retreating. Actually, in the Middle Ages, they were the academic communities. The people were constantly communicating. They were open communities of, of scholarship. And we have that tradition in science today of open science where I share my results with people. I'm not trying to keep it a secret and so on. Um, but that was a new thing because, again, most cultures throughout most of history uh, have secret societies. You keep secrets. You don't want to let everybody know what you're doing and what you're finding out. You want to, you know, your secret is your power, and you want to only allow a few people in. And so the idea of free sharing of information, which uh, eventually leads to the first scientific society in England, the Royal Society, is, uh, is coming from that idea of community, uh, of saying that we have a community in which we are open and honest with each other instead of trying to keep secrets and have power over each other. Clearly, you know, there were still a lot of power games going on in the monastic communities. It wasn't like they were all just wonderful, loving people who shared the truth all the time. But it was still a completely different model from the secret society model, which dominated most of the pagan world uh, and the rest of the world at, uh, at that time. Um, okay, so my argument is for all of these reasons that Christianity actually played a crucial role 
in the rise of what we consider to be the modern scientific uh, mentality. So why then do we have this storyline of warfare between science and Christianity? I already mentioned this is a storyline that gets created in the Enlightenment. Uh, so this is a movement that starts uh, in Germany and France. It was a deliberate movement. It was uh, funded uh, by um, one of the kings of Germany, uh, of Prussia. He actually, uh, this is a great way to have influence. He bought, endowed, he endowed chairs at universities all around Europe and said, I will pick the people who fill these chairs. And he filled them with all people who taught this enlightenment thinking. So in one generation, he was able to have a huge influence on Europe uh, propagating this enlightenment thinking. Um, so I can't do justice in a short talk to what the enlightenment movement was all about. I'll just give you some sort of um, uh, high points here. Uh, one of the attributes that comes up is the focus on dismissing connection with the past. Uh, that the enlightenment, the whole name means sort of we are the enlightened ones, right? Before people were in darkness and now we are the ones who have awakened or, or been enlightened. Um, this is in large part a reaction against their existing systems, that they had monarchies, they had nobles, they had wealthy entrenched church structures, and there was a lot of feeling that that was just dead weight, and they needed to break from that and move on. And a lot of us would probably sympathize with that. Um, they, at this point, this is uh, 100 years or so after Newton, they had now basically ensconced Newton as the arbiter of, of truth to say that, you know, when Newton wrote his laws, he wrote them as empirical laws. He said, this fits the data. You know, this is an a, a assumption I'm going to make about how things work, and the justification is that it fits the data. Uh, within 50 years uh, after Newton, you have people like Laplace reversing that and saying, these laws are self-evident. They must be true. There can be no other laws. The laws themselves have an existence by themselves, and they, you know, everything is forced into that mold. That's why when things like relativity and quantum mechanics come along, there was this huge hand-wringing, because if you had said Newton's laws are self-evident, and then you find out 100 years after that, well, Newton's laws are not quite correct, um, if you're a sort of empirical scientist, you'd say, no problem. We're just doing a little bit of extra correction. Uh, but if you're one of these Enlightenment people who say these things are self-evident truths, and the, you can't give them up lightly. Uh, and so the whole uh, Enlightenment model uh, says that the equations are written in stone. They can't be changed. Um, and so sort of jumping way ahead, the Enlightenment model eventually leads to scientific approaches to everything, to saying we're going to reconstruct uh, society based on science. And so we're going to get rid of all the things of the past. We're going to have a uh, scientific approach to how we uh, raise children. We're going to have a scientific approach to what types of people should be allowed to live, and so on and so forth. Uh, and these are exported, of course, uh, out of Europe into all around the world. Well, as part of the Enlightenment, a, a new history is created, and there's a fellow named Andrew White, who was actually one of the founders of my alma mater, Cornell, who wrote a book called The History of the Warfare of Christianity and Science, and that book was extremely influential. And it's interesting, um, there's a historian uh, at uh, Messiah College, which is just down the road, uh, Ted Davis, who has done a lot of history, which is really not controversial these days, that Andrew White just made up a lot of stuff. I mean, actually, uh, it's historically uh, not a good book. You know, he created a myth, and much, and much of it has been debunked, but it created a narrative which is still with us. Uh, in fact, as I said, all science originally was being done by monks. The church was paying for the science. It was supporting these guys in fellowships, uh, so to speak. 
and uh, that was where it was all being done until the 1800s when you start to have some independent societies doing things. Um, I don't have time to really go into the trial of Galileo, but one thing to keep in mind is the trial of Galileo and the trial of Luther are not far apart in history. Uh, you have a, very, a great similarity in both cases in that you have someone who's a curmudgeon who's saying the church is wrong on, a, on something that they've said uh, pretty loudly was true. Uh, and so the church at the time of Galileo felt it couldn't concede that Galileo was right because that would just give support to these guys saying Luther was right. Uh, if you admit that you've been wrong on some key points. Now, the Catholic Church uh, did not have any official doctrine saying you know, anything about the rotation of the earth and so on, but the majority of the Catholic scholars did oppose Galileo and say you know, the earth sits still and everything rotates around us. Um, but um, probably the larger issue is just at that time, conceding any weakness would have been politically disastrous because the Reformation is going on at the same time. Uh, if it ha happened 100 years earlier, probably it would not have been that controversial. 100 years earlier, you probably would have just had a debate of some monks uh, debating about this and so on. But Galileo comes at a time where the church was really in a position of not wanting to admit uh, any error. Um, we can come back to Galileo if you want to uh, talk about that in the Q&A. So another myth that's created at the time of the Enlightenment uh, in the 1700s and 1800s is this idea of the God of the gaps. And that's still with us as well. Uh, if you go on the Internet and you argue anything about Christianity, you will soon uh, have someone talk about the God of the gaps. And th this storyline is, again, sort of a nice narrative, but if you look at it, it breaks down. It says that, well, basically, um, people argued for the ex existence of God based on their lack of knowledge of things. So everything they didn't understand, they said, well, God, had to, you know, God did that. Uh, and then the more science comes along, gives us understanding of things, the less space there is for God. And eventually science will explain everything and there'll be no place for God. Uh, and that's the narrative here. Um, well, there's several problems with it. Actually, first of all, it's not true. You can look up apologetic writings from all the way back to uh, Jewish people before the time of Christ, uh, the Middle Ages, and so on. They weren't arguing on the basis of what they didn't understand. They were arguing on the basis of what they did understand. Uh, they were saying uh, things like eternity uh, or causation or design or the existence of mind were things that pointed toward God. And we can talk about, again, some of this tomorrow morning. Uh, they were not saying, well, gee, I don't understand that. It must be God. That's not what you see in any of these writings. And so this narrative of saying that people argue for the existence of God on the basis of ignorance is simply not historically correct. Now, you have to distinguish that from things that people didn't understand, and they said, well, I think God did that, but it wasn't an argument for the existence of God. So, for instance, uh, comets. You know, remember I talked about this idea of portents, you know, that the general mindset of people in the early Middle Ages was to say everything is a sign, right? It means something. And so if they saw a comet, they would say, um, oh, I bet maybe God is trying to tell us something there. Well, they weren't saying, I believe God exists because I saw a comet. It was, it was the argument is perverse, uh, completely the reverse. They were saying, I believe that God exists already, and so believing in God, seeing this comment, I think it's a sign from him. You see the difference in the type of argument? It's not saying, I believe God exists because of comments. It's saying, because I already believe in God, therefore when I see something unusual, I'll say, well, maybe that's from God. All right? And so they weren't, in fact, arguing for the existence of God on the basis of these things. Um, and in fact, all of the serious uh, so-called gaps 
the things that people argue and argued in uh, ancient writings, going all the way back to Plato and so on, things that point to the that point to God are still just as valid today. Things like the origin of the universe, the origin of life, and the origin of mind. These are things that philosophers wrestle with even today. They're not things that science has closed up and said, well, there's no need for philosophers and theologians anymore because we perfectly understand life or we perfectly understand the mind. And so, again, I'll come back to that uh, tomorrow morning. And then there's a third sort of myth that um, comes up in the Enlightenment, which is the idea of scientific laws as things which exist in and of themselves. So in the original uh, sort of medieval approach, they had this phrase of thinking God's thoughts after him. The idea of saying, well, God does things. We believe he's an orderly God, so he's not making things chaotic and confusing. And so as we study things, we're approaching the mind of God. Uh, in our modern world, again, this is such a deep presupposition, we hardly ever think about it. But many, many people have the idea that laws of nature exist in and of themselves, and God has to obey those laws. And so, um, you know, you will have people who have this picture of God uh, as a big man with a big beard flying around in the sky, uh, and uh, there's certain things that he can't do because he's constrained by the laws of physics. Um, and it's surprising how many people would have that picture. Uh, but, of course, the Christian view is that God is outside of time. He's outside the universe. He makes the laws. And so uh, these are things which he decrees. And so if he decides to decree to do it a different way and do a miracle, that's not some kind of logical contradiction. It's just saying that God mostly does this, but he reserves the right to do a miracle from time to time. Uh, and, um, again, from an Enlightenment perspective, if you think of the laws as fundamental, they're trying to put a God into the picture of someone inside that structure who has to obey those laws. Uh, and so in that case, they would say miracles are not possible. And I already mentioned how Laplace was one of the promoters of this view that Newton's laws are absolute, and only uh, less than 100 years later, uh, his view is overturned by relativity and quantum mechanics. Uh, in fact, any scientist would tell you that the scientific laws that we have are all empirical at their root. Um, we use a lot of aesthetic things to inform ourselves. We say, well, if this theory looks prettier, and I know some of you cannot imagine a scientific theory looking pretty, uh, but we have aesthetics in science, and we would say certain theories look pretty. Uh, and so we would prefer pretty ones to non-pretty ones. But we still would say it's empirical because I can't just pick my favorite pretty theory. I have to pick the one that fits the data. Uh, and if I have a really beautiful theory but it doesn't fit the data, out it goes. Uh, and one that looks uglier but actually fits the data always has to win. So I can only choose the pretty one if, if it fits the data uh, as well as the ugly one. So in fact, all of our theories, uh, including the deepest uh, standard model, particle physics, quantum mechanics, all of those, have free parameters, approximations, and are being revised. Uh, science is not this idea of this sort of platonic concept that descends from heaven uh, or has its own self-existence. And uh, we talked a little bit over dinner about Neoplatonism, people who are going back to Plato and saying ideas just exist in themselves, but Christians would not say that. But again, uh, you know, you might argue that scientific laws uh, are really intrinsic realities uh, that just exist in and of themselves. But it doesn't come from the science, right? It would be maybe a presupposition you want to make, but, the, but the, um, the Enlightenment wants to say that this is proven by science, that somehow science proves that these laws are inviolate. 
and, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, science is always changing its laws, and none of the laws, including deep ones, like Newton's laws, are viewed as the final word, and in fact, they can be revised and adjusted. So I'll, uh, I'll finish uh, with this, uh, the downfall of the Enlightenment. In some ways, arguing against uh, secular atheism, arguing against uh, you know, people like uh, Richard Dawkins is sort of passe, because they represent a tiny fraction of our society. You know, in the 1800s, that was what Christians were all arguing against. But we don't live in a rationalist, modernist, uh, enlightenment culture really that much anymore. We live in a postmodern uh, culture. Um, postmodernism, um, there's a lot that Christians can learn from it, um, a lot that we would disagree with. Uh, one of the points it makes is that self-evident arguments usually aren't. Oftentimes they're just called self-evident by people who want to make that argument and not give any evidence. Uh, and so the idea of people saying, well, Newton's laws or some other laws are self-evident, they must be true, uh, breaks down, I says, a hundred years later. But there's a lot of other things that people were saying were self-evident and basically meant, well, everybody believes this, and so uh, we can't really come up with an argument for it. We just all believe it. Uh, and so that uh, is a breakdown of that rationalist enlightenment movement. Objective science often isn't. Scientists do their work based on moral and, as I said, aesthetic beliefs. Um, the picture of the scientist that's created by the enlightenment is someone who just walks into the lab completely emotionless, just turns knobs, collects data. And if you've ever done any science, you know, people care deeply about what they're going to find. I go in, I have a theory I want to prove. I don't want it to be disproven. I want it to come out the way I want it to. Uh, and now, if you're an honest scientist, if it doesn't come out the way you want, you don't fabricate data to make it come out the way you want. Uh, maybe in a lab class you do, uh, but you better not in the real world. Uh, <laughs> but um, what you, this still influences us because it tells us where to look. Scientists don't simply go randomly collecting data. They look for particular things that they're looking for, and what they're looking for is based on these kind of moral and aesthetic principles uh, very often. Uh, and so actually passion and value and morality come into science quite a bit. Um, and this one, of course, uh, is a big deal these days. Really, it's hard for us to realize how much we've become postmodern and how different society used to be in terms of viewing science as the solver of all human problems. You know, when the Nazis and the communists came along saying, we're going to be scientific, and that's going to be the way we solve all of humans' problems, that was the part that people liked. You know, that was the part that resonated with people. And I actually am old enough to remember in the early 60s, uh, it's hard to believe, but uh, uh, Dow Chemical had a, um, a slogan that they used as an advertising slogan, which was, better living through chemistry. Right? You know? And some of you, I can see some people nodding uh, who are older than me. And um, imagine that as an advertising slogan today. Our stuff is better because it's got more chemicals in it. You know? <laughs> you know, that's, that's not the way we think, right? There's already been a reaction against saying more science is always, you know, more technology is always better. And so there's been this reaction toward what we call postmodernism. And so the enlightenment is, is weak. Um, and again, I think uh, I see this a lot uh, in the city in Pittsburgh uh, among the, uh, uh, I'll call them hipsters. Um, <laughs> uh, our, I think it's a good movement in a lot of ways. The idea of rejection of history, which is the basis of the Enlightenment, leads to rootlessness. The people feel rootless. They feel they have no tie-in to history. They have no sense of belonging anywhere. Uh, and uh, you could call it rootless individualism is in the air in America. And 
the hipster movement and a lot of other people are saying, I want to be rooted. I want to have community. I want to plug in somewhere and not just be an atom floating in a meaningless universe. Um, so I'll finish. I said I was finishing with the other. Okay, I have another slide here. Uh, we're in a postmodern, post-enlightenment stage. Can, can science survive? I would argue that science is operating to a large degree on Christian momentum. Uh, as I said, honesty is breaking down. There's more and more stories of fabrication in science uh, because people don't care about truth with a capital T anymore. They just care about uh, you know, getting a job and getting published. Um, the Franciscan love of Roger Bacon, when that gets lost, you end up with pointless scholasticism, just publishing for the sake of publishing and not actually saying, how does this help anybody? Uh, when community is lost, we start to keep secrets from each other. I can't tell you how many times... Uh, it happens these days that somebody won't tell you how they do their thing because they want to publish before you. Uh, and so as we lose that sense of community and open sharing of stuff uh, because we want to aggrandize ourselves, secrecy increases, and that leads to uh, uh, worse science as well. Um, if we don't fear God more than man, in fact, a lot of science is done by fear of authorities. And that's interesting. When I gave this talk at uh, MIT, I, this was the point that a lot of Chinese graduate students came up and said, absolutely. They said, in China, everybody is just doing something to please their superior. And science is uh, really not doing well in China in a lot of ways because there's such a hierarchical nature to their science that um, everybody's afraid to do anything new. Uh, and, um, and so it's a real problem in a lot of cultures. If we lose the sense of incarnation, uh, then we start to say, well, I don't want to get my hands mucky. I don't want to do experiments. I want to just think pure theory. Uh, and so we end up with people who don't actually know how to turn a screwdriver or actually how to make stuff work. Uh, and I'm happy to be at an engineering school to tell you, go for it. Make those things actually work. Uh, and finally, um, the replacement of modernism or the Enlightenment movement by postmodernism means that paganism is increasing. And along with that, Sort of going back to the things I talked about at the beginning of the talk, belief in spirits, superstition, and pseudoscience, starting to say, well, maybe the science experiment won't be the same tomorrow because maybe a spirit will get into my equipment and make it come out different. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, we might chuckle at that, but that's actually uh, a worldview that is on the rise to say that maybe there's not order in the world and it's just a chaotic bunch of spirits fighting each other all the time. So I'm just going to uh, finish with this advertisement. I encourage you to join the society. Um, this is a society that's about uh, two or three years old, and um, it's not the Christian science religion. Uh, it's Christian scientists. And um, uh, we have uh, two types of members. We have full members who have to be actual scientists, uh, and I encourage your faculty to join as full members. Uh, but we also have associate membership, which basically means that you just pay and you get the newsletter and you get the right to go to the meetings. And um, uh, you can also access the website and get all the video recorded talks from the annual meetings if you don't actually get to the meetings. And there's all kinds of fun stuff, uh, videos, uh, interesting stuff and, and things. And uh, also, you can go to Facebook if you don't, don't want to do that whole thing. Go to Facebook, and you can see the Christian Scientific Society page on Facebook. And it's way more active than the website is in terms of actual dialogue and, and debate and news and things like that. Uh, so with that, uh, I'll finish, and I'd be happy to answer questions at this point. Thanks a lot. Hearers of the faith that are living, you're saying? Or, uh, yeah, living, living. <laughs> um, 
Well, I don't know who's heroes or who's heroes. Um, yeah, actually, Smalley just passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, and he was actually, um, he had a, a conversion late in life. Uh, and uh, really, uh, it was quite a story. Uh, I mentioned at dinner, Fritz Schaefer, uh, probably one of the most important chemists uh, in the world uh, these days. Um, and um, I'd have to think about who else is out there. Oh, well, Bill Phillips won the Nobel Prize. I didn't quote him. Um, He's down at Maryland. Uh, he's a uh, fellow I know fairly well, actually. He works in my field, and um, he's a Christian as well. Whether they're heroes of the faith, I don't know. You know, I mean, they're not martyrs. <laughs> you know, they're, they're doing okay. Uh, but they're people who are quite open about professing their faith. Francis Collins is a biologist. Now, it's interesting. I'll talk about Francis Collins tomorrow. He and I, I've met him and had some discussions. He and I have some pretty significant disagreements. Um, he, uh, he actually was in an administrative role over the Genome Project, and I actually, um, well, I'll leave my disagreements with him for tomorrow morning. Uh, <laughs> Pseudoscience. Uh, What's well, any science I don't like, right? No. <laughs> um, no, actually, there's been a lot of thinking about that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's an easy label to put on somebody else's science to dismiss them, but there really still is such a thing as pseudoscience. Um, uh, I guess uh, it's interesting. I get on a regular basis, probably uh, once every couple weeks, just by virtue of being a professor in physics at a major university, I get somebody sending me an article uh, that they've written or sometimes even whole books telling me how all of modern physics is wrong and how they've rethought it all and they you know, are going to tell me. And um, I look at their thing and I say, well, maybe the first thing you should do would be to actually go to graduate school and study physics uh, before you try to revise all of physics. Uh, <laughs> because a lot of the basis of pseudoscience is uh, people who are completely outside the system trying to critique it with no knowledge of what it really says. Uh, and it's sort of like saying, well, I have a completely new view of Tolstoy, uh, but I don't speak Russian, uh, and I've never actually been to Russia. I don't know anything about Russia, but I've completely revised all of modern scholarship on Tolstoy. It's just not going to fly, right? So they're sort of paying your dues. If you want to rattle the cage and you want to promote alternatives, that's fair game, but make sure you pay your dues and learn what the other side is saying first. Uh, because a lot of pseudoscience is people who don't take the time to actually learn with a theory that they're challenging. Uh, they're really working from a very flimsy foundation. And so the people who are the best uh, shakers of cages, the people who have actually taken the time to study the system, learn it, uh, and then critique it after they've learned it. And I think, unfortunately, Christians a lot of times will take shortcuts. Uh, they'll say, I don't need to learn all that stuff. Uh, I've got my Bible, and I can just critique all this uh, science and stuff on my own with just my Bible, and I don't have to put in my dues to actually study the stuff. Um, so there are some other characteristics. Um, one characteristic of pseudoscience is when people simply won't give up. Uh, you know, And I see this at a number of levels. A lot of times not so uh, deep, but just sometimes just even like in an optical theory about interpreting some spectrum or something. Um, you'll have somebody who... At first, their theory makes sense, and then other people say, well, oh, but, you know, you didn't account for this, and so that's an error. And the person just keeps finagling their theory to keep, you know, defending it at all costs. And when you start to see a theory being patched up over and over and more and more corrections and things to make up for the flaws, uh, at some point, other people just shake their head and say, this is just a patch-up job, and, uh, and it's not really working. Um, and so in terms of... Um, 
this breakdown of society that I was talking about here, uh, the rise of, of pseudoscience, um, there's sort of two sides to that. I would say one side of it is the um, uh, sort of breakdown of trust of each other in society. And I see this a lot on the internet, that conspiracy theories fly all over the internet. And there's all kinds of people who will say, you know, I saw this article on the internet and so on. Uh, and, if, if, you know, I would say if they really have something, they ought to try to publish it in a regular journal. And there's lots of journals out there. It's, uh, but um, there's another side to it, which I really think is a sort of a pagan side to things, where people are willing to sort of believe in magic, you know. And um, I uh, do a lot with quantum mechanics. And, you, you know, you go on the Internet, people just basically invoke the name of quantum mechanics just as a buzzword and say, well, magic happens because quantum mechanics, you know. And, um, you know, there is a spiritual element of people wanting to say it's not, you know, quantum mechanics just as a physical theory, but somehow quantum mechanics is their door for getting spirits into the system and bringing in spirituality and so on. Uh, so that is part of the story as well. The scientific climate. Um, it's not particularly hostile to Christianity. Um, the scientific climate at almost every major uh, scientific institution is about money. Uh, if you're bringing in grant money, then you can say anything you want, <laughs> to within reason. Um, it's a very pragmatist environment. Uh, you know, if you're bringing in money, uh, this is good. And um, I mean, that's not completely crazy because you need money to do research. Right? And it's also not crazy because funding agencies tend to give money toward good science. You know, so it's not as though money is uncorrelated with good science. <laughs> um, but by and large, um, I don't find a lot of people who are philosophically trying to drum Christians out or anything like that. Um, but um, still, clearly, you know, I'll talk tomorrow more about the intelligent design movement and so on. There's certain things that you know would not be very welcome there. Uh, but even there, there are things that people say publicly and things that people say privately. I've had a number of conversations with people about intelligent design and had good conversations. Um, so, but overall, um, it's not a uh, politically charged atmosphere, in the hard sciences at least. You know, in social science it may be a wholly uh, different story, but in the hard sciences, um, it's a very pragmatist uh, type of environment. Let's thank our speaker one more time.